So one thing to know about me is that I am a huge movie buff. I love movies. I love going to the movies. I love watching movies. I love watching bad movies. I love watching good movies. I love movies. And uh, one of the things that you'll notice is obviously anytime a movie gets really popular in American culture, then uh, by extension, there are movie lines from the movie that become popular in American culture. But what's fascinating is how often, even though it's ever so small, sometimes these lines actually get a little lost or distorted, and we repeat lines from movies wrongly. So, for example, uh, this is audience participation time. What's the most famous line from The Wizard of Oz? Frosty the Wizard. Oh, I guess that's probably one of them. What's another of the really famous lines? I guess it's not as popular as I thought it was. <laughs> Oh, very good. Okay, would you say that for me louder? We're not in Kansas anymore. We're not in Kansas anymore. That's not the line. <laughs> it's often misquoted as Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore, but the actual quote is Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. All right, let's, let's try it again. Snow White, what's the, the, the saying that conjures the mirror to give the evil queen her prophecies or whatever you want? What, what does she say to activate that? You raise your hand. No. <laughs> but that's how we all remember it. Mirror, mirror on the wall. The quote is actually magic mirror on the wall. Not mirror, mirror on the wall. Star Wars. Darth Vader says something extremely popular to Luke. What does Darth Vader tell Luke? This is a big spoiler alert, by the way, if you haven't seen Star Wars. But I figured if you haven't seen it by now, you just don't want to. What is it that Darth Vader says to, I'm looking at the Star Wars buff here. What's the famous line? Luke, I am your father. That is not the line. He, he does not say, Luke, I'm your father. Very good. He says, no, I am your father. We put Luke in there just to sort of contextualize. You see, you see how it's these minor errors, but they sort of crap. Well, what's interesting is this happens with Bible verses too. For example, in Isaiah chapter 11, there's this famous prophecy of the new heavens and the new earth when the Messiah comes. And in it, in this prophecy, it is said that something will lay down with something. Well, you, our, our, our resident scholar over here just quoted it correctly. But yeah, it's often, said, it's often said that the lion will lay down with the lamb. That's how almost everyone quotes Isaiah 11, chapter 6, but that's not what it says. It says the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard lays down with young goats. But we always quote it as the lion laying down with the lamb, but that's not the actual quotation. Another one is a famous one that I hear a lot is Matthew 23, 37, is often quoted as this, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. That's how I hear it quoted, but it's actually how often I would have gathered your children together as the hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. But perhaps the most famous, famous, <laughs> famous example of all misquoted Bible verses is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6, part of our preaching portion today. 1 Timothy chapter 6 talks about something being the root of all evil. All right, our, our Christians in the room know it's the love of money, but what you often hear 
when people quote it as money is the root of all evil. But that's not what Paul says. So let's look today at what Paul is actually saying in that verse in context, what he's actually saying, what he means, and how that applies to our larger uh, context and our lives together as a church and as individual Christians. If you would please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, the last few weeks I've really preached fairly small sermon portions. We're going to change that today. We're going to cover a lot of text today, and we'll try to do it in a responsible amount of time as well. If you would begin with me in verse 3, for these are the very words of God. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So that's our primary portion text that we see. And you'll notice that a lot of times um, your Bibles will sort of clump the end of verse 2 with verse 3. And contextually, that makes a lot of sense because what we discussed last week, Paul concludes by saying, teach and urge these things, which I interpret as being this entire list of honoring honoring widows and pastors and slave owners, teach and urge these things. And then he immediately transitions to what to do with those who refuse to teach and urge these things? What to do with those who refuse to believe and promote and practice these things? And so he begins by sort of setting up an explicit denunciation of apostates, which are, an apostate, by the way, is someone who's walked away from the Christian faith, who used to profess publicly Christian faith and, and no longer does in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and so he's dealing with these false teachers who we're going to see are most likely apostates. And uh, he, he explicitly deals with the content of their character. Uh, but what he does implicitly in that is he, he tells us something about the nature of Christians and the nature of Christian doctrine as well. Why? He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So in, in other words, if anyone teaches theology that is inconsistent with the apostolic deposit, this, this, this religion of sound doctrine, godliness, this testimony of Jesus Christ, what the apostles have given you, if someone teaches something different than that, then they and then sort of unravel in this whole host of sins and depravity. And so we see a couple important things, a few important things about the nature of Christian doctrine. And the first thing we see is that theology matters. Doctrine matters to Paul. All throughout the pastoral epistles, we have Paul urging Timothy to teach what is true, to teach what has been handed down to him. Paul cares a lot about what is being taught in a local church. And, and, and this might seem like common sense, but unfortunately in the evangelical culture at large, it's not. 
in my opinion, we do suffer in 21st century American evangelicalism from a disease where we just don't care that much about doctrine, about theology. And oftentimes those who do are mischaracterized and misrepresented as eggheads who just love to be right. But we see all throughout the New Testament and especially in the pastoral epistles a huge emphasis on getting doctrine right. On teaching what accords with sound doctrine and not listening to people who teach different doctrines. So theology matters. But we also see that theology works. And what I mean by that is theology is not something that just sits up in the attic of our heads and gets dusty. True doctrine lends itself to changing our behavior. Why do I say that? Well, because notice how this, the false teachers begin with teaching and believing false doctrine, and then that spirals into the manifestation of corrupt living. So bad doctrine will produce bad works. But a living, true, holy doctrine will produce living, holy, true works. See, doctrine works. Doctrine is not just supposed to sit in our heads. It's supposed to begin in our heads and then move into our hearts, conform us and change us. So doctrine matters, doctrine works. And then the last thing I want to say, and this one I want to be a little careful with, but I think Paul is really implying there's a perspicuity to doctrine. Christian doctrine is perspicuous. What do I mean by that? It means it's clear and understandable. Peter tells us that some of the things Paul writes are difficult and hard to understand. So I'm not saying that the Bible, every jot and tittle, is perfectly clear, there's no room for debate, and we understand everything we read. That's not what I'm saying. But obviously, Paul is under the impression here that there's a a general clarity to the apostolic deposit, because what's his whole point? He's telling Timothy, I've laid this out for you, I've given it to you, if someone disagrees with it, don't listen to them. There's no room for saying, well, what I'm saying is so difficult to understand. Their disagreements are kind of inevitable and natural. We would expect. No, Paul, Paul is under the assumption that what I'm saying is so clear, they should know better. But they don't. Paul is saying to, to, to twist my words, to misunderstand what we're saying, requires sinister motives. Because it's pretty clear without those. So there's a genuine a general, forgive me, clarity to what Paul is saying that he can so quickly just reject those who reject it and and, and accuse them of sinister evil motives for why they reject it. But what's more important here, what's not so implicit but rather explicit, is obviously Paul has launched into sort of a a, a critique, um, to put it lightly, of the false teachers that at least are in Timothy's life and threatening their church. And he begins, as we discussed, that they first begin by teaching different doctrine and they don't agree with sound words and the teaching that accords with godliness. In verse 4, he then starts, for, through verses 4 and 5, he now talks about their character. Why they do this, and what doing this will further lead them into. And he begins by saying, in order to disagree with what we have taught, a person must be puffed up with conceit. Some of your translations might render that a little bit more simple and say arrogant. Right? These people are Arrogant. Now, this is really probably not super germane or relevant to the overall discussion, but I, I got an English major. I'm just kind of a nerd for words and language, and so I'm just going to share this with you. Uh, the reason it, the, the ESV says puffed up, or some of your translations might say something about a cloud or smoke or something along those. The Greek word 
behind here is basically talking about being caught in the clouds or being surrounded by clouds, being surrounded by smoke. So that's why the ESV says something like puffed up. But the, the, the idea here, the reason all the translations agree that this is talking about arrogance is the idea is that someone who's up in the clouds thinks they're above everybody. It's, it's kind of a funny expression. It's like, you are so much better than me, I can't even see you. You are so above me, you're just in the clouds, you're covered in clouds, covered in smoke, I can't even see you, you're so high above me. That's the mentality of these people. They're puffed up, they're up in the clouds, they're arrogant, they're conceited. And so that tells us something important. That tells us that it takes a great deal of arrogance to think you know better than the Bible. It takes a great deal of arrogance to think, no, 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 no. listen, I understand that Paul and Peter walked with the Lord Jesus. Uh, well, Peter walked with him and Paul had the revelation. I understand they were taught by the Lord Jesus himself and that they're infallible guides of the Holy Spirit, but I, I, I don't think they got this issue right. That's not humility. And I see it all the time, especially in academic circles. Those who question the authority of Scripture, question the doctrine and teaching of Scripture, act as if they're being humble and neutral and modest. But it is a great deal of arrogance required in saying, I know better than the apostles. So to disagree with this teaching is quite frankly arrogant. And that tells us something that there is a, a subtle humility to just simply submitting to the Bible. When you stand for biblical truth, it's easy for people to characterize you as being arrogant and conceited and thinking you're a know-it-all. But it's really extremely humble and to say, listen, I'm not asking you to believe what I believe. I'm not asking you to conform your life to my thoughts. I'm not asking you to conform your life to, to my studies and to my expertise. I'm asking you to humble yourself and to submit to something else like I am doing. There is a subtle humility in simply saying, I don't know Jesus does. I don't know the apostles do. Let the Bible teach me. That's humble. That's humble. It's saying, I don't know. But I'm thankful that there are people that God has equipped to know. It takes a great deal of arrogance, and these false teachers who deny sound doctrine are arrogant, puffed up with conceit. And then he says they understand nothing. That's a bold claim. Nothing? This is a biblical claim. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Without, without the fear of the Lord, you have no true wisdom. You have no true knowledge. You have stolen wisdom that you've stolen from the Christian faith, or you have theology and beliefs that sound really academically smart, but if the Lord Jesus is not the foundation of that knowledge, the Bible says it's not knowledge at all. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. In Colossians 2, verses 4 through 10, Paul describes empty deceit and meaningless philosophy is anything that is founded on human tradition and not on Christ. If the fear of the Lord is not the foundation of your worldview, you don't know anything at all. You have no true knowledge. Once you've rejected the Christian faith, you have borrowed knowledge and you have false knowledge. Notice how, turn at the end of the letter really quickly. Look at, look at what he says in verse 20 and 21 as he concludes. He says this, almost this exact same thing. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. It's the apostolic faith. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. 
grace be with you. You see, this false teaching is not real knowledge at all. It doesn't matter how much you dress it up in fancy language and jargon to make it sound smart. If it is not established on God's revelation, it is not true knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. These men are conceited and they don't actually, they might sound smart and they're leading people and people are chasing and following their teachings, but Paul says at the end of the day, they're arrogant and they don't know anything. And he moves on to really describe them as just having an unhealthy love to debate, right? He says that, continuing in verse 4, he has an unhealthy, the, the Greek word there is to literally be sick. He is sick with a craving for controversy and quarrels about words. What's Paul accusing them of? Paul is saying that these are people who just love the debate. They love the debate more than they love the truth. They're not, they're not ultimately trying to seek for truth. They're ultimately just trying to debate. They have an unhealthy, a sick, perverted love for debate. And not only that, but they, 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 they debate among words. He's accusing them of meaningless semantics, making much of nothing, and this is how all false teaching gets started. We, we, we make a big deal out of these small little things and it just unravels. They love debates. They love meaningless semantics. They have an unhealthy love for debate. Essentially, they really, they love debate more than they love God. They love being right more than they love God. Uh, there's a, a, a debate movie um, with a pastor named Douglas Wilson and it's called Collision and he travels around with this atheist who's now passed away um, named Christopher Hitchens and there's this funny line at the very end of the movie where Christopher Hitchens is sort of admitting that if, if, if he could have a button and, and he could press it and it would just turn all religious people into non-religious people. He, he could press it and just make every person an atheist. He said he wouldn't do it. And he gives two reasons for it. And the last one's more important. It's why the film ends on that note. But the first one, he says sort of jokingly, but very seriously, he says, because if I did that, well, then who would I have to debate? I mean, I love this. I, I, he made a living. His, he made a living out of traveling the world and debating religious people. Who would I have to debate? This is a man who cared more about winning the debate than he did about his side actually coming out true. Why would I want everyone to be to reject Christianity, who would I have to debate? And, and honestly, for some of us as Christians, we really need to check our own hearts in that. Sometimes, even in my own life, I've thought, heaven doesn't sound that good because I can't do apologetics. That's sinful. The ultimate goal is not to debate. We debate because there's a greater means behind it, which is the conformity to the truth. But these are men who are not interested in that. They just want to debate and look smart. And Paul has no patience for that. And what do these debates produce? Continue again in verse 4. They produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. They produce envy because, again, now if you're in this debate match, you're in this debate mode, now the real goal is that I look smarter than this guy. This guy has more knowledge than me. He's smarter than me, and I want it. It turns people and their followers into envious people dissension. There's, there's no unity. False teaching cannot produce true unity. It produces envy, and envy produces dissension, and then what happens? Slander. In the debate world, we call this ad hominem, where you attack someone's character rather than their argument. You can't beat them in the debate, so you go after them, and you lie about them, and you say harsh things about them to win the debate through the back door. 
It produces envy, dissension, slander, and I love this, evil suspicions. This is really important for us. I want us to continually remember, as Christians, giving someone the benefit of the doubt is Christian in its origin. This is really important for us. It, it is so easy in life, in, in human conversation, to misread things, to get a weird vibe from someone. She said this. Don't, doesn't it kind of sound like she's implying this? Did you see the way that he looked at me when he was talking? It is so easy to get a weird vibe and immediately jump to there's some sinister motive here. We as Christians are called to give people the benefit of the doubt. We don't need to have these evil suspicions about one another. Why does he look at me when he talks like that? Did you notice how when I came into church today, she walked right past me, she didn't even say hello? These evil suspicions give people the benefit of the doubt. Don't just assume that they don't like you and that they're trying to offend you. Evil suspicions is supposed to be caused by envy and dissension and false teaching, not by genuine Christian love and doctrine. Let's give people the benefit of the doubt in our lives and especially in our church because it is the false teachers here who are the ones characterized by having evil suspicions and again, constant friction. There is no unity among these people. And Paul says that it's serious enough that these people are not even Christians because look at how he defines it. He defines them as a people depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. The Greek word there is theft. The truth was stolen from them. Again, these were people who maybe once understood and professed the truth, but through their love of debate and quarreling and envy and all of these other things, they chased after something that is no longer the truth. They have been deprived of the truth and they now know nothing. But all of this really begins to lead into what is Paul's larger and bigger point. Of all these things, I mean, we just spent a lot of time talking about this vice list of false teachers. But the one he ends on, we can tell, is the one most prevalent in the lives of these false teachers and most important to him. And I'll justify that here in a minute. But what is it? How does he end this in verse 5? Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That's his biggest beef. That's the issue here. Some of your translations might throw in something like godliness is a means of material gain. That's not in the Greek, but the translations are trying to supply what the context really makes abundantly clear. Here's what Paul is saying. These false teachers have commercialized Christianity. They have turned the ministry. They have turned the church. They have turned being a Christian not into an end itself, but in a means to an end, and that end specifically being material gain. These are people who want to use Christianity. They want to use the church. They want to use the Lord Jesus to get to something even better, which is money and material possessions. And this is Paul's biggest beef, and this is his main point. How do we know that's what he means, and why do I say it's such a big deal? Well, we know that's what he means because for the rest of this section, he's only going to talk about the temptation of, of, of falling into the temptation of desiring to be rich. So that's why we know that verse 6 is talking about material money, monetary gains, because he immediately starts talking about why you shouldn't desire to be rich. So that's how we know that's what he means. And here's why I say that's so important to him, because he basically talks about this for the rest of the letter. 
He talks about it through the rest of our sermon portion, and then he takes a break to talk to Timothy, and then in verse 17, which we'll look at, he actually comes back to it and ends the letter with talking about being rich again. The whole last section of this letter is almost entirely dedicated to this issue of being content with what you have. That's how Paul ends his letter to Timothy. He ends him with an exhortation to be content with what you have. Paul wants Timothy to find the Christian virtue that we call contentment. And my wife and I, in our own personal lives, we talk regularly. And I think that in my personal experience, this is the hardest, most difficult issue of all Christian virtues. To believe that I have enough to believe that God right now, as it stands, is enough for me. Do you believe that this morning? Do you put your head on your pillow every night knowing, if, every, if I wake up and everything is taken from me, Jesus is enough. It's a difficult thing, but that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about. Paul says in verse, the end of verse 5 that these false teachers think that godliness is a means of material gain. And then he says in verse 6, kind of this ironic twisting on his head, he says, here's the thing, godliness is great gain, but only if you couple it with contentment. So what's his point? Here's what Paul's saying. Listen, godliness is a great gain. It will earn you a lot, but it's not going to earn you what you wanted to earn you. The purpose of godliness is to be gainful, but not to earn material possessions. That's not the purpose of being godly. That's not the purpose of the Christian faith to be financially established and have enough. That's not why we're godly. That's not why we love Jesus. And he, he moves on to show us three things about what I'm calling greed today, this love of money, this love to have more. And the first is he shows us that greed is illogical. It doesn't make sense. Look at verse 7. We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. This is an expression that is found all throughout the Old Testament, and it's found in the secular world throughout human history as well. This idea that we were not made for material things. None of them will go into eternity with you. You didn't have them at your birth. It's illogical to obsess over something that clearly we were not ultimately made for. You don't get to take this stuff with you into eternity. So why do you care so much about it? Greed is illogical. It really, he's highlighting the insanity of materialism. But he also shows us not only that greed is illogical, but he continues to show us just how radical Christian contentment is. Look at what he says in verse 8. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. The Greek word under there is a covering. We have a covering. So I would argue you could maybe make an argument for shelter as well. But here's Paul's point. If you have enough to get you through the day, you have more than enough. You've got food, you've got clothing, you should be content. Now, this, this does highlight that things like poverty, these are real human crises that the church should care about. There are some people in this world who don't have food and don't have clothing, and we should care about that. Because Paul says here, he doesn't, he doesn't tell us that we, we, we want to have absolutely nothing and be okay with that. If you don't have food, if you don't have clothing, that's a genuine problem you're allowed to be concerned over. But if you have those things, you're set. 
That's the radical nature of Christian contentment. You have food, you have clothing, you're set. It doesn't have to be designer clothing, it's just clothing. It doesn't have, you don't have to have a personal chef, you just need food. If we have food and clothing, we will be content. The Christian is called to be thankful for our basic needs being met. Proverbs 30, verses 8 through 9 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. So that proverb is saying, listen, I don't want to be in poverty because then I'm going to be tempted to steal and that's not good. But you know what? I don't want to be rich either because then if I'm rich, I'm going to convince myself that it's my material gains that provide for me and are sufficient for me and it will lead me to say, who's the Lord? Who needs him? That's why the proverb says, I don't want poverty or riches. Just give me what I need. And I'm content with that. Because greed is illogical. But verse 9 moves on to say it's not just illogical. Greed is also destructive. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Greed is not just illogical, it's destructive. When you have greed, when you have a love for money, when you desire money, when you just can't get enough and you want more and more and more, Paul describes that as a temptation, a snare, which will trap you. And then once you're in that trap, there's nothing ahead of you but to ruin your life. And we see, we do not have time today to talk about all the real world examples of people who have ruined themselves because they couldn't have enough. The whole purpose of gambling is all established upon the point that even when someone wins, they will keep giving us money because it won't be enough. And people ruin their lives. And not just through gambling. There are many ways in which greed, this hunger, this desire for more will get you into this snare, this trap, and you will eventually destroy yourself. Now, why does that happen? Why is greed, why is this love, obsession for money, why is it such a snare, such a trap? Well, I would submit to you it's simply because the things that we desire when we are greedy are things that will never truly satisfy us. It's a slippery slope. There's no end to that gain. That you will never ever say, okay, if I could just have this, then I'll be happy. Because you're going to get it, and guess what's going to be the next thought in your mind? Well, if I could just have this, and there's no end to it. I'll never forget the fall of 2009. I was a freshman in, at New Mexico Junior College in Hobbs, New Mexico. And I, I just moved from Denver, so I knew no one. I had no friends, and so I, I checked out the local FCA. Right, this is a national organization, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and although I wasn't an athlete, I needed some Christian friends. So I went to this FCA meeting. It's just a bunch of young Christian collegiate athletes and some kind of Bible study leader. And he showed us a video. Now remember, this is back in 2009. This is 10 years ago. Uh, so I'm not making any claims about Tom Brady now, but he showed us a video of Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots. And it was interesting um, it was, I don't remember the program. It was something like 60 Minutes or some kind of nightly news brief interview thing. And uh, the guy, Tom Brady expressed some kind of displeasure of life. And the guy said, wait a minute, hold on. Let me stop you for a second. <laughs> How could you be unhappy? The guy's a millionaire. I mean, the guy is loaded. Not only is he one of the richest athletes in the world, 
But he's married to a woman who's the richest supermodel in the world, and this might blow your mind, but supermodels actually make significantly more money than professional athletes. Modeling is a huge, booming industry. So this is one of the richest men in the world who's married one of the richest women in the world. This guy is loaded. And on top of that, his wife was voted in multiple, I don't know who gets to make the call on these kinds of things, but in multiple magazines and contests was voted the most beautiful woman in the world multiple years in a row. He's a famous athlete with multiple Super Bowls. He has more money than our minds can fathom. He's extremely attractive and healthy. He's married to someone extremely happy, uh, uh, attractive and healthy. And they've got healthy kids. They've got a family. They're beautiful. They're healthy. They're rich. They're famous. And guess what I remember seeing? Tom Brady stopped and tears flooded his eyes. Just pouring and he said, for some reason, I wake up in the morning and I just still feel empty. I, I still don't feel like I have anything. Because money, materials, simply cannot satisfy us. You can have it all and you will still wake up empty. It's a snare. It's a trap. Shakespeare in the play Henry VI has this really, really powerful section where this common-looking man approaches other gentlemen and he claims to be a king. And they say, you're not a king, where's your crown? He says, my crown is not on my head, it's in my heart. And it's not laced with jewels and Indian stones. For my crown is the crown of content, a crown that other kings seldom possess. Contentment Shakespeare realized, is something the richest, most powerful men in the world almost never have. They have everything and it's not enough. It will never be enough. But better than Shakespeare is Solomon under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, the one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. The love of money, greed, is a snare, it's a pit, it's a trap. Why? Because it will never satisfy you. Whatever it is in your life that you think is preventing you from being happy, I promise you it's not. You'll get it and you'll still be unhappy. I think that's why C.S. Lewis went on to pen his famous line that if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. There is nothing in this world that is enough for you. Nothing. And that's Paul's point. It's a snare, it's a trap, and if you fall into it, it's this never-ending road, and the only destination you reach is destruction. Greed is illogical. Greed is destructive, but we see greed is also just downright sinful. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Greed has pulled people from the Christian faith and ruined their lives. Loving money has pulled people from being able to love God because what does Jesus say in, Ma in the book in, in the Gospels? You cannot serve two masters. You will serve God or you will serve money. 
People who have chosen to worship money more than God have left the Christian faith and ruined their lives. And Paul says that's because the love of money, not money itself, not having money, not money, loving money, is a root of all kinds of evil. So what is Paul saying here? He's, he, he's, he's not saying that money is evil. That's not what the text says. He says that the love of money is evil, and we'll prove that just further here in a minute. But he also says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What does that mean? Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that every single sin, every time someone does anything evil, there was always a monetary gain underneath that. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that greed can lead you into all different manners of sin. There, there's no other sin in the world that greed isn't at least potentially capable of bringing you to. It's the root of all these different kinds of evil. So for example, let's just give some real life examples. Obviously, greed can lead to the sin of theft. Like that's kind of an obvious, I want that, I don't have it, I'm going to take it. But greed can lead to a lot more than just theft. You want to know why a lot of politicians lie? Because they were paid off. Love of money can make you lie. Love of money can make you a hypocrite. Love of money can make you steal. You realize that most of the people involved in wicked and sinful sexual occupations, sex trafficking, pornography, you know why? It's one of the most booming global businesses. There's a lot of money in that field. The love of money can lead you into sinful sexual lifestyles. Here's Paul's point. There is no evil out there that money doesn't have, the love of money for me doesn't have the potential to bring you to. Money can make you a thief. It can make you a fornicator. It can make you a liar. It can make you a hypocrite. And we do find so often when there are public scandals, there is almost always a paper trail. Am I wrong? There's almost always a financial reason underneath why he did that, why she said that, why he went that way. There's almost always a financial motive underneath. The love of money truly is the root of all kinds of evils. And so many people have led their lives into ruin and destruction, have pierced themselves with many pains and have abandoned the faith because they craved money more than Jesus. Just like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus saying, I want you, I want to be with you. And Jesus who knew his heart said, let's test that. What do you want more? Me or all your money? And what did he do? He walked away. The love of money has pulled people from the faith. Now again, I want us to emphasize here that Paul does not believe being rich is a sin. Having money, having possessions is not a sin. And we know that because he returns to this topic throughout the letter. If you'll turn with me to verse 17 of this same chapter. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. So he just got done not long ago talking about the destruction and insanity and, 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 and sinfulness of loving money. So what does he say in verse 17? As for the rich in this present age, charge them to get rid of all of their possessions and become poor for it is sinful for you to be rich. No, that's not what he says. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So what's the commandment for the rich people? Is it to be poor? Does it mean poverty equals righteousness? 
Are the poorer people always the, the, the more righteous and the more humble people? We tend to think that, right? Because, I mean, Jesus was poor. Jesus didn't have wealth and riches. And, and the disciples, almost all of them were poor, right? So we tend to see poverty and poorness as a lot of times being, these are the people who are truly, truly love the Lord. Now, there, there is a genuine truth that oftentimes the Lord uses destitute situations to reveal our dependency and our need for him. So yes, trials, tribulations, poverty, these things can draw you to an incredibly intense, delightful relationship with God. But the Bible never makes the connection that poverty equals righteous. As a matter of fact, typically impoverished people are the most greedy. Because their circumstances are so bad and their desire to get out of it is so much, they will do almost anything to get more. Being rich is not a sin. Having money is not a sin. But here's what is sinful, to be rich and to be haughty. What does that mean? Well, again, it's simply talking about uh, being prideful. Rich people need to be humble. You are not better than someone because you have more money than they are. You're not better, you're not smarter, you're not more important, you're not more valuable. And this is why we constantly see throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of James, a command for churches not to treat rich people with, with more generosity, more love than we do with poor people. James tells us not to, to, to treat people like that. Whether we are poor or rich, we come to the table of the Lord equals. You do not get to think that because you have so much stuff, you're a better person than us than other people. You are not to be haughty, but you're allowed to be rich. And he says you're not to set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Again, you are to trust in the Lord. Because why? Because riches are uncertain. You might be rich today. That is no guarantee you're going to be rich tomorrow. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. You have no idea what your financial circumstances will be tomorrow, five years from now, ten years from now. You just don't know. So why put your hope in that? Unlike riches, our God is constant, consistent, steadfast, unmoving, faithful in all circumstances. Rich people are to be humble. They are to trust in the Lord. They are to be generous. Verse 18, they are to provide are there to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Rich people have more to give. <laughs> and Jesus says it is better to give than to receive, so rich people need to be generous people. But again, it is not telling them to not be rich. And thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And I want us to sort of close and land on this last part because here's what I find so fascinating. As I was doing my research, everything that I was finding about the message here, which is that Christians are called to be content and not to be greedy. We are called to be content with what we have. That, if, if I can just speak plainly, is what we call in, in life common sense. Like, I don't know if I've ever met a Christian who's ever once come up to me and says, you know, it's really important for Christians to be as greedy and materialistic as possible. And we've had to debate what the Bible says on that. Everybody knows this. You didn't need to hear this sermon to know this. If, if you came walking through the door and I said, hold on, before you sit down, let me ask you, what's more important, God or money? How many of you think you'd get the wrong answer? How many of you think even the non-believing world would profess the wrong answer? 
It's almost common sense. As a matter of fact, in almost every study and commentary that I was reading, they were rich with worldly, secular quotations, secular fables, secular thinkers who, who all throughout history have been saying this very thing. Epicurus is a Greek philosopher who predates Jesus, and he has this famous saying by, by, by I won't say it exactly as he did it, but essentially his point was this. If you want to be rich, there's two roads to get there. You can get more or you can desire less. Epicurus, a non-Christian Greek philosopher, was teaching the masses that you can be the richest person on earth if you would just be content with what you have. Because then you're, now you suddenly overnight have become a person who has everything. So you want to be rich? You don't need more. You need to desire less. That, that's a secular fable. There's this, an old Spanish proverb which says there are no pockets on a shroud. What does that mean? A shroud is what you are covered in death. You're not taking anything into the afterlife with you. Your wallet's not going with you. Again, that's just some Spanish proverbial saying that has no... Christian backbone to it. It's just saying what everyone seems to be true. There's a famous song, money can't buy you love. Right? Can't buy you love. It's not enough to satisfy you, right? That's not a Christian song. That's not a worship song. There's probably some churches in America singing it, but it's not a worship song. Show me one children's book. Show me one Disney movie that's indoctrinating our children. You might say it's doing so implicitly. You might say this is the ultimate work of these things, but show me one children's book that explicitly is teaching children to live materialistic lifestyles, that, that, that money is really all you need, it's the ultimate purpose of life, you should never be content unless you have as much stuff, as much money as possible. No one's teaching this. No one. So then I thought, well, why don't we seem to be living it? If it's such common knowledge... If it's such widely accepted belief, why don't we actually live like this? And I think there's a couple reasons for that. The first reason, which is sort of limited to just our contemporary setting, is that materialistic living is inherent in the predominant worldview of our culture. We live in a secular culture. It's the religion of secularism that has ruthless gods in a ruthless gospel, and think about secularism for a minute. Secularism says there either is no God or we don't know there's a God, so we should live our lives according to the belief that there may not be one. There's no God, no gospel, no afterlife, so what's the only thing that can grow in that soil? All there is is the material world, so what becomes the most important thing? Material world. We teach our children in this culture a worldview that cannot provide anything to them but materialism. All there is is matter, and when I die, there's nothing. So just like the Apostle, said in first, Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, may we just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We teach them a worldview which breeds materialism, and then we try to give them a children's book that says, by the way, you shouldn't be materialistic. But you indoctrinated me to be that already. When you told me that there may not be a God or that there isn't a God or that we don't need to structure our lives after God's word, I now have nothing to pursue but what's in front of me. Secularism cannot give you selfless contentment. 
The whole key purpose of Darwinian evolution is to be materialistic. That's how the whole machine operates. That's how the whole thing functions. You get what you need to pass on your progeny so that you might die and have your kind keep going. It's all about getting what you need when you need it for no other purpose but yourself and then knowing that after you die, nothing happens. That's how lions live. That's how the animal world lives. And Darwin said, we are the animal world. So your job is to accumulate stuff, find pleasure, be happy, and die. There's nothing in that worldview that gives you any reason to be content. You have to steal that from Christians. But there's something more important that transcends 21st century secular religion. And it's related to this, and it's just simply this. The reason everyone knows contentment is valuable but can't find it is because they don't have a gospel which can satisfy them in the place of material goods. They don't have a religion good enough. They don't have a God good enough to fill that gap. So what else are you going to do? Right? That, that is exactly Paul's point here. In other words, I disagree with the Epicurean philosopher. I don't think it's the Christian's job to desire less Quite contrary, it's our job to desire far more. The Christian's job is to recognize that we as human beings desire so much more than what this world offers. We're not desiring less, we're desiring more. We're not desiring less, we're desiring different. And it is only, as Paul says, what Christ offers in this apostolic faith that can truly satisfy. That's why, what does he tell rich people again in verse 19? What's a hope for them? Why should they be generous? Why not put all their hopes in riches? Why? Because you can store up treasures as a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul says that the Christian gospel offers rich people a life better than this current life living as a rich person. He says this rich life you're living now isn't even true life. But if you follow Christ, you can have life which is truly life. He has given rich people something better to desire. He hasn't told them to desire less. He's told them to desire more. There's a better life for you than this life of rich, fleeting material possessions. This is, so, so, so he, don't get me wrong, I am not browbeating here. I am not saying, be content, be content with a whip, stop being greedy, stop being greedy. I am not just calling you to not be greedy. I am doing what the Apostle Paul has done in this text by reminding us that godliness, which he described earlier as being Christ incarnate, the future life, these are the things that will ultimately satisfy you. I'm calling us not just to be content. I'm saying that by the power of the Spirit, we can fix our eyes on a reality that's so much better that it will truly satisfy. To conclude, to see this, just turn to the book of Philippians. Turn back just a, a few books. Paul begins by saying in Philippians chapter 3, He talks about before Christ, he had the world. Reputation, status, potential. 
Look at chapter 3, verse Let's just begin in verse 2. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has more reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But here's the key. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of what? Because I just desire less now? I'm just content, chilled out, relaxed? No. I have found something better than everything I used to hope for. I consider, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's Paul's point. Nothing else in this world means anything to me if you would dare compare it to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, being in him and being found righteous in him. Paul says, if you wake up tomorrow and your family's dead and your money's gone and your house is burned down, but you are found in the righteousness of Christ, you have everything. Jesus promises to be enough for us. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, the surpassing knowledge of knowing there's an eternity where I can lay treasures up in now, that gives me what I need to look at food and clothing and say, yeah, God, you have been good to me. And that's why he goes on in chapter 4 of the book of Philippians to finish it by saying this. Look at verses 11 through 13. After thanking the church for providing for some of his needs, he clarifies what he means by needs in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In every, in any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through whom it strengthens me. What's Paul's point? Christ gives me strength. Christ gives me righteousness. What more do I need? If the Lord blesses me, great. These are all great things from the Lord that we are called to enjoy. That's what we saw in verses 17 through 19. If the Lord is blessing you, that's great. Don't just get rid of it and be in poverty. Enjoy it and thank him for it. But if all you have is food and clothing, you have more than enough if you are in Christ Jesus. And if you are out of Christ Jesus, you don't have anything. You have nothing. Your family's not going into eternity with you. Your money's not going. Your status, your fame, your health, none of these things. If you have Christ, you have everything. If you don't have Christ, you have nothing. And it is only when we look at the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ that our hearts can be satisfied. At the end, we see that Paul is calling Christians to be holistic Christians. We are called to have informed minds, but more than that, satisfied hearts. May we reflect and look upon Jesus and his gospel and the eternal life he promises us, and may that be the grounds of our contentment so that we may be able to join together and sing 
Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Would you please stand?